So if you're visiting with us today, you know that at, uh, well, you need to know that at uh, Calvary Chapel Mountain View, we just go right through the Bible, verse by verse, book by book. We've been in the book of Matthew, uh, looking at one of these great gospels. This morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. You can turn there as I remind you that, you know, chapter 11 in Matthew's account is where our story kind of takes a turn. Chapters 1 through 10, of course, we've seen the, what they call the revelation of the king. We've seen Jesus revealed in his person and his principles and his power. But now beginning here, beginning in chapters 11 and then into verse 12, we, I mean uh, chapter 12, we start to see the rebellion against the king, where all of these things that we've learned about Jesus in the first 10 chapters begin to be challenged by his enemies, beginning first, we saw, with their rejection of his forerunner, John. And what a great word it was last week, as Pastor Rick shared with us from the first part of Matthew chapter 11 about John the Baptist and the way that he was singled out and, of course, was suffering and then ultimately, we know, was executed because of his faith in Jesus, his testimony about Jesus. But we watched Jesus give testimony about John, remember praising him for his courage and his bravery and calling him the the greatest amongst all the prophets. And Jesus began to rebuke those religious leaders for their unbelief, the way that they were rejecting John's message and just calling him kind of a fanatic and sort of writing him off. And you remember at the end of the text last time, Jesus had this little parable in in verses uh, 16 through 19. He finished off kind of couldn't have their way to little children who were pouting because they couldn't have their way. He basically was saying that instead of being childlike and humbling themselves, the leaders were being childish and that they were being stubborn. And in our text this morning, we're going to join Jesus again as he continues this rebuke against those that will ultimately reject his message. But then we're going to see that in this remarkable moment, he's going to kind of conclude his comments, if you will, by comparing and then contrasting those that would be condemned with those who would be accepted. And then at the very end of our text, we're going to see one of these most cherished, one of these most priceless promises that Jesus makes throughout all the scriptures. And I pray that that, I know that that is going to be an encouragement to all of our hearts here today. So Father, we just pray that you would bless our time in your word this morning, Lord. We pray for open ears to hear, Lord, what your spirit would say to your church, Lord, open hearts, uh, open to the work that he wants to do through your word. So we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, You've heard this story before. It's a great one. But there's a story that there was a battleship that was cruising out in the Atlantic off of the northern coast of Maine. And one stormy evening, as the story goes, the commander was notified, hey, sir, there's a vessel oncoming. There's a light in the distance. And the, the captain said, well, signal the oncoming vessel, change your course 10 degrees to the west. And so they sent that message. And it said, but a light flashed back. It said, change your course 10 degrees to the east. And the the captain said, well, signal them again. Say, change your course 10 degrees to the west. I am an admiral. And then the light flashed back at them. Change your course 10 degrees to the east. I am a seaman third class. 
and of course incensed, right? The admiral, he thunders, signal again, change your course 10 degrees to the west. I am a battleship. And then after a moment, there was a message that came back. It said, change your course 10 degrees to the east. I am a lighthouse, right? Of course. Again, you've all heard it, but it's such a great important illustration of the way that so many people very imprudently, very impetuously will say to the Lord, you know, my course is the correct course. And sometimes we proudly reject the Lord. We refuse his direction. We ignore his light instead of approaching him with humility and adjusting the course that we're currently on. And we run the risk, of course, of shipwreck. And we run the risk of ending up like the lost who we're going to see the Lord Jesus use as a warning to us, as an example for our admonition in our text today. So let's pick up in Matthew 11, verse 20. Jesus continues this rebuke. He paints this striking portrait for us, beginning first with this condemnation of those who reject. It says, then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. It says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Now, Tyre and Sidon, these were pagan Gentile cities, which would have been about 35, about 60 miles away, respectively, out on the Phoenician coast. They had both been judged, violently destroyed hundreds of years in the past because of their wickedness and their rebellion. And yet Jesus says, woe unto you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. Now, these were two cities right there on the Galilee where Jesus had kind of headquartered his ministry. He's saying, woe unto you more than Tyre and Sidon, because although I've done so many marvelous works among you, you're just not responding to me. And then in verse 23, he says, and you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So in addition to Chorazin, in addition to Bethsaida, here Jesus implicates, he indicts his own kind of hometown of Capernaum. That was the place that was the base for his whole Galilee ministry operation. Those living in Capernaum, they saw his works. They heard his message, but they didn't respond. If you remember, five of the ten miracles that we saw recorded in Matthews 8 and 9 were all performed where? Right there in Capernaum. Now, if you go to Israel, which maybe we'll get a chance to do next year as a church, you can actually visit these sites. You can visit Capernaum, and you can visit Bethsaida. You can visit Chorazin, right? And what you see when you do is that each of these cities, which were once hugely prosperous, are now nothing but piles of rocks. 
Now, by all logic, these cities should be thriving today. Right? The location is beautiful, and the climate there is perfect, and the water is abundant, and the resources are plenty, and yet these cities were judged and destroyed not very long after this statement was made, and yet for some reason they were never, ever rebuilt. It would be almost as if Cupertino and Saratoga and Los Gatos were suddenly wiped out and yet strangely never rebuilt. People would say, well, why not? Those are such beautiful locations geographically. And yet centuries had come and gone, and these cities are still dead to this very day. Now, I think it's interesting, it's important to note that this is the very first time that we find Jesus uttering any word of a coming condemnation. And we can't ignore the fact that with these words, he seems to imply that there are, in fact, different degrees of judgment, right? That some are going to be punished more severely in the final judgment than others. Now, we think about the parable that Jesus told of the servants in Luke chapter 12, and he concludes, he says that the servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will, he shall be beaten with many stripes, but he who did not know and yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. Now this, of course, is a point that the Apostle Paul well understood, and he wrote to the Romans. In chapter 1, he talks about men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Then he says that since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that what? They are without excuse. And so specifically for these cities here, and possibly more importantly for us, the application is that where the light shines the brightest, people are going to have the greatest responsibility. And we have to see that the implications for the, the Western English-speaking church and for the United States specifically are sobering. Because I believe what it means is that the Western world has a tremendous accountability before God. Think about it. We have so much light. We have an access to the gospel that no other society has ever had. And yet, how desperate we remain in need of repentance. There is likely not a person in our country who has not heard of Jesus. And who probably hasn't heard the gospel message. And yes, there remain, there remain countless millions who have simply rejected him because they've neglected this truth about him. Because consider this with me. None of these cities whom the Lord Jesus is calling out here, neither Capernaum nor Chorazim nor Bethsaida, never do we read of any of these places, never did they attack Never did they drive him from their gates. They didn't actually even seek to crucify him. But what did they do? They simply disregarded him. 
And the point is that neglect and indifference can be just as deadly as an all-out open rejection, right? Whether we're talking nationally or locally or whether we're talking personally. Now, I grew up in a Christian home and I spent the first 30 years of my life intellectually affirming Jesus and the gospel and yet I was personally indifferent to it. I always assumed that my faith was probably just fine and that all of those born-again people, right, that they were just a little too into it, right? Maybe they needed it a little more than I did because obviously they didn't have it as together as I had it, right? Because I knew I wasn't perfect, but I also knew that God forgives us, right? That that's, he's in the forgiving business. And yet it wasn't until at the age of 30 that all of a sudden the harsh reality of my personal sin became real and it actually became personal to me. And that's the point that I realized that in my pride and in my arrogance and in my rebellion and my sin and my self-sufficiency, I had nearly destroyed everything that I thought I had actually built in my life. That point that I was broken and I rightly recognized for the first time that I had a desperate need for a savior. For 30 years, in my indifference, I was actually rejecting Jesus. And I was rejecting my deep need for him and for that forgiveness that only he can provide. And so may be some of you this morning. If you're rejecting those life-giving words of Jesus Christ, if there are any of you here today that say, you know, I don't believe that much in this Jesus stuff. Not really, right? Because when we do, we're a dead city. Right? If we refuse to respond to the mighty works of Jesus that are all around us, if we refuse to respond to his word, which is constantly before us, the truth is that judgment will come upon us. Because at some point, that tender-hearted Savior, Jesus, is going to become a righteous judge. And I think even for those of us this morning who are believers, isn't it true that so often we can kind of leave our lives in ruin and in rubble through our own indifference to that rebuilding that the Lord Jesus so desperately wants to do in us? We kind of go about and we just start building on our own and we let the words, we let the works of Jesus, those things that we're seeing evident all around us, we kind of, we don't give ourselves wholly to him. And when we do, we're simply missing out on what he wants to and what he could do through our life that's totally submitted to him. In Psalm 145, it says that the Lord is near to all who call upon him and to all who call upon him in truth. See, as we move on, I don't think that we'd be straining the text here at all if we were to pick up within this word of woe that's there on the lips of Jesus, I think that there's a broken heart behind it from Jesus. I think there's great sorrow and I think there's a great sense of pity here because it's so tragic that these cities should or that so many people do 
treat lightly the opportunities they have to see and to hear and to, and to make Jesus their savior and, and, and be saved. It's a very serious thing to know the truth and to turn from it or just to simply remain indifferent to it. Now, we mentioned this morning as we started that this chapter was kind of a crucial moment, right? It's a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. We're seeing this open rebellion here against the king. It's already set in. Ultimately, we know it's going to culminate in open rejection of him. And yet, look as we continue. Look at what Jesus says and does next. He's just condemned these three Jewish cities. Verse 25 said that at that time... Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. So he moves right from the condemnation of those who reject. Immediately now, he offers up praise for those who believe. Jesus stops Right? He turns his focus to the Father and he gives thanks. And I just think right there, what a great example for us to follow when we come up against those times of difficulty. Right? Here's Jesus faced with open hostility, right? opposition, the Son of God manifest in the flesh. And what does he do? He takes rest, he finds comfort, and he gives thanks for the will and for the wisdom of God. See, God had bypassed these wise and these prudent scribes and Pharisees, and instead he had chosen the simple but believing, common, humble people for salvation. It's like Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 1 that God has chosen what? The foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. If you're here this morning and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, can I encourage you that you are one of those foolish and weak things this morning? And aren't you glad? There's so many situations, I think, in our own lives that we can't explain, and yet you know, the, mystery, the Father's will, we can simply rest in it, right? We can simply be comforted by it. We can simply take the opportunity to recognize the wisdom of it as we just simply love and obey him, right? In Psalms 9, it says that those who know your name will put their trust in you. For those, Lord, you have not forsaken those who seek you. So here Jesus had completely shifted his attention from the rebellious to the faithful, right? From these Jewish leaders who were so intellectually, they were so spiritually proud, they refused to become like little children in humility and honesty. And he moves his attention to those who were receiving his ministry with this childlike faith. And here's that glaring difference between these spoiled children, right, in the parable, and the submitted children, in this exclamation of praise and thanksgiving. I think it's so true that for so many today, it's the pernicious pride and it's that alluring arrogance of our own humanistic wisdom or sometimes from our worldly education. That's what keeps people from fully submitting themselves 
to the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus. And the reason is because there's nothing about the gospel that makes any sense. It doesn't make sense that the God of the universe would love us so much that he would send his son to die for us. We can't reconcile it, right? We can't systematize that. We can't analyze it. We try to scrutinize it. I think sometimes we can try to understand it intellectually, but we really can't comprehend it experientially until we've embraced it personally. And what I mean by that is I remember praying to receive the Lord with Pastor Rick. I think I shared that a few weeks back. And it was a time in my life when I was being crushed under the weight of my own guilt and my shame. And I remember praying with him. And after we prayed, Rick asked me how I felt. And as this wave of this unexplainable peace that I had never experienced before it had come over me and I remember thinking and I remember answering him it just seems like it was too easy I said and I will never forget Pastor Rick looking at me with that compassionate super intense gaze that only he has you know and he said to me Bill he said it was easy for you but it wasn't easy for Jesus. And at that moment, it clicked. What I would later learn that Paul said to the Corinthians, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, Jesus did all the work, right? He did the heavy lifting. And that's the wisdom of the gospel. That's the only way that it works. That's why it doesn't make any sense to us. And yet Jesus says here that that seemed right in the sight of the Father. And aren't we glad? The Bible further says of Jesus in Colossians 2, it says that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. So next, look what Jesus explains in verse 27. He says that all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one whom the Son wills to reveal him. So the Father reveals himself to the Son, and the Son reveals himself and the Father to anyone who's willing to come to the Son in simple faith. So, If you want to know the Father, the only way is what? To get to know the Son. Now, understand the impact of what Jesus is saying here. Imagine again the scene. Jesus is addressing the multitudes. He's announcing this coming judgment on these cities geographically, on these religious leaders collectively because of the way that they had pridefully rejected him. And now he makes this staggering claim that only he, right, instead of they, only he can really reveal to the Father, to those who are truly seeking him. And if that little claim wasn't enough, watch next. We see that that is simply, I think, the undergirding for one of the most beautiful offers that Jesus would ever extend. He had already, you know, he'd 
given us this condemnation of those who reject. Then we paused briefly for this praise for those whom would believe. And now finally, Jesus makes this promise to all who receive. In verse 28, he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So here Jesus is flinging the door wide open, isn't he, to anyone who would just come to him in humility and in simplicity and simply believe and take his yoke. Now this is truly a statement, right? This is an offer. This is an invitation that none but the Son of God revealed in the flesh could possibly make. Now, we think of a yoke, of course, as a sort of a wooden harness that would be worn by an ox or some other kind of beast of burden. And of course, a yoke is that. And yet, in Jewish thought, it was so much more than that. Right? The ancient Jews would very commonly use this idea of a yoke just to express somebody's obligation to God. They talk about the yoke of the kingdom and the yoke of the law and the yoke of the command or the yoke of repentance, the yoke of faith, or just the general yoke of God. If you see all throughout the Old Testament and then in the rabbinic writings, it was just a symbol of service, a symbol of servitude. And so in that context... We see Jesus making it so simple and just saying, hey, forget about all of those other yokes. Forget about this man-made burden that the Pharisees are placing. He says, take my yoke. He says, and then you'll find rest in, for your souls. Right? You'll find rest from the struggle and the strain of man-made religion or of self-sufficiency or of self-improvement or of guilt and shame that you're carrying for your past. This is a promise of complete rest from the deep weariness that we all experience in our soul. It's that weariness that comes when we feel like we just don't know if we can go on one more day. It's the weariness that a, a parent feels when their child is in trouble or, or doing wrong. It's the weariness that a friend can feel when they've been wronged or abandoned or misunderstood. It's the weariness that a spouse feels, you know, when a husband or when a wife has rejected them. It's that weariness sometimes that is, just comes from disillusionment when we've poured ourselves into a career and we've been laboring, we've been looking for fulfillment only to find finally that it's empty. Right? It's that weariness that can take its toll on even the most seemingly successful individuals where we feel like we're depressed to the point of death. Right, We're despairing because of divorce or we're struggling with disease or we're dealing with death and discouragement. To any and all of these situations, right? Jesus says to us, come and find rest. And note the way he uses that word two times. In verse 28, he says, I will give you rest. And this is that peace with God that comes from our salvation. In Romans chapter 5, it says that having been justified by faith, faith we have peace 
with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's that forgiveness, that freedom from guilt. And then again in verse 29, Jesus says, you will find rest. And this is that peace of God that comes when we completely surrender ourselves to him. It's like the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians. He said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, he says, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. So this is that peace that comes to us in the midst of trial. And both of these things, Jesus said, are ours when we simply come to him. You can't put a price on that kind of peace. Notice he didn't say go to church, although we hope that you will. Right? He didn't say listen to a sermon. He didn't say get some counseling. He didn't say read a book. He said what? Come to me. He said, learn of me. He said, yoke with me. Now, do you see the connection here? It, it, this is super, totally counterintuitive, and yet it is so incredibly imperative that in order to actually experience rest, what do we need to do? We need to put on the yoke. But... It needs to be the one not that we have fashioned for ourselves, not to be the one that someone else has tried to put upon us, but it needs to be the one that the Lord Jesus has uniquely designed, especially for us. The one that keeps us constantly connected to and keeps us in lockstep with him. That's the yoke that brings us rest. We all know, of course, that Jesus was a carpenter. And in a few weeks, we'll see that the Greek word that's translated carpenter in chapter 13, right, that describes Joseph, refers to a Finnish carpenter as opposed to, opposed to like a framer. So tradition has it that the carpenter shop where Jesus would have worked there alongside with his father Joseph, that that shop specialized in making, you guessed it, yokes. So when you would yoke two oxen together, the skilled carpenter would design the yoke to perfectly fit each ox individually and comfortably. In fact, that word easy in verse 30 is a Greek word that specifically means well-fitting. The yoke was designed individually to be comfortable and well-fitting to each ox. And since there was always a lead ox that would get yoked together with a, a, an assistant ox, if you will, who would follow along, you know, the yoke was designed in such a way that that lead ox would always be pulling the greater weight. So you've got this older, more experienced animal that was bearing the brunt of the burden, guiding the younger, weaker animal through the learning process, and the follower or the assistant ox, his only job was to go with the flow. You see, the yoke is easy and the burden is light simply because Jesus bears it with us. See, born alone, it would be unbearable. And yet with Jesus, it can be easy and it can be light. Once again, because 
Jesus is doing all of the work. Now, I know that there are people in this room this morning who feel weary. Weary to the point of pain and exhaustion, maybe physically, mentally, emotionally. I know that there are people here this morning who feel crushed and who feel weighed down by burdens that are way too much to carry. They're too heavy. They're unimaginable to bear up under. And yet, if that's you this morning, know that you're not alone. There are many others who are right there with you. Even the great apostle Paul, right? Remember he wrote to the church at Corinth. He said, we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, he says, which came to us in Asia, and that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we what? It says he despaired even of his very life. And then later he would write that they, are, they were hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We were perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our body. So what was it that kept Paul going? He was yoked together to Jesus. To Jesus, whose grace was sufficient, whose yoke was easy, whose burden was light, simply because he was there with Paul in the midst of the pain. Now, if our yoke is hard and our burden is heavy, so often there are well-meaning people who would try to tell us that it's because it isn't his yoke or it isn't his burden, that maybe we've taken on too much upon ourselves. And, and there are times when that can be true. But can I also tell you that there are times when that's not true at all. There are times when a heart yoke is heavy and our burden is unbearable simply because we're not letting Jesus bear the burden the way that he wants to. We're just not letting him shoulder the burden in the way that only he can. It's because we're trying to take more of the weight than we're capable of it. And this morning, Jesus wants to come alongside of us. And he wants to be yoked with us because he wants to help us. And for some of us today, that may mean a slight course correction, right? And this morning, I can't think of a better opportunity to come to the table of communion together. Because when we do, it's an opportunity both to remember and it's an opportunity to reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. right? To remember his broken body and his spilled blood. But it's also an opportunity to find rest in that sacrifice once again. See, if, if you've been carrying an unbearable burden alone, or if you just need Jesus to shoulder more of that burden and to lighten your load and to ease your yoke, then confess that to him this morning and ask him for his help. And if you're here with us today and you've never done that before, you can do it this morning for the very first time. 
you can ask Jesus to forgive you and to cleanse you and then to help you. And then you can know that same peace and that rest that he's promising this morning. You can course correct, right? So that you have a connection rather than a collision with Jesus Christ, the light of the world. You know, in the Bible, Jesus describes his gift to his followers right here as this rest for our souls. And that is an unmatchable gift, right? It's this priceless promise. It's powerful and it's profound. But know this, that's no less than just the birthright of those people who would simply come to Jesus and become his followers. So as Kissy comes up and we begin to prepare for communion this morning, let me encourage you. There will be prayer counselors available on either side. If you've never made that kind of a commitment to Jesus, do it this morning. They will pray with you. They will encourage you. They'll help to guide you through that process. And the light will go on for you and you'll understand what Jesus did for you. Or if you just have a burden that you've been trying to bear, come and have them pray with you. The, the Lord Jesus would take the way that he wants to take that weight for you. So as we worship, the communion will be available. You're welcome to come up. Take it back to your seat, pray and reflect. And when you're ready, take it on your own, just between you and the Lord Jesus. And as we're all done, Kissy will close us out um, with one more chorus. Father, we thank you so much for today, and we thank you so much for your word. Father, we thank you for this precious promise, Lord, given to us this morning by the Son. And I pray this morning for anyone who's here, Lord, that is just feeling that burden, Lord, that's overwhelmed. I pray that you would speak to their hearts, Lord, even now. Lord, bring them to that place where they can ask for help, Lord, where they can allow you to bear the burden the way that you want to. So, Father, we pray that you would bless this time even now as we remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We thank you and we praise you in his precious name. Amen. Are you hurting and broken within, overwhelmed by the weight of your sin?